Thank you, Mr. Awada. I hope you all enjoyed our program this morning. E3 2004. Nintendo's conference is coming to an end. Members of the press witnessed Reggie fils first public appearance as the face of Nintendo of America. He revealed the Nintendo DS, while Satoru Iwata hinted at Nintendo's next home console, the Revolution. And with trailers for Metroid Prime 2 and Resident Evil 4, the show had plenty for people to get excited about. But they had one last surprise planned for the show. The lights dimmed, and a piece from the 1982 film Conan the Barbarian plays over a trailer for a new game. For the time, its graphics seemed impressive, but mild interest would turn to excitement as the entire Kodak Theater erupted into cheers. Mirroring the classic Ocarina of Time commercial from 1998, complete with a similar editing style and the same accompanying music, Nintendo revealed the next Legend of Zelda game to be in the same vein as the one that everybody remembered. And to cap everything off, Shigeru Miyamoto stepped out after the trailer concluded, equipped with the Master Sword and Hylian Shield. It lives on as one of E3's most memorable moments, but the game's reveal and the reactions of those present shed light on the bigger picture. Nintendo's previous Zelda game, The Wind Waker, was bolder and more emotionally resonant than general audiences in the West gave it credit for at the time, and its art style was emblematic of its thesis. Contemporary critics loved it, and while it certainly had its issues, its reputation has only improved with time. Unfortunately, Nintendo didn't have time on their side during the GameCube era, and they wouldn't be able to witness the true impact left by Wind Waker until much later. The GameCube's sales were disappointing, and even if they had no immediate effect on Wind Waker upon release, the game's sales would have still been well below Ocarina of Time anyway, due to the art direction's lukewarm reception in the West. Simply put, the loudest voices at the time belonged to those that wanted something closer to what they remembered. As a result, Eiji Aonuma was forced to put aside his idea of a direct sequel to Wind Waker in favor of something that would win over international audiences. With the successor to the GameCube on the horizon and millions of nostalgic fans looking Nintendo's way, Aonuma and his team were faced with a responsibility unlike any other. If they were to promise a game that follows closely in Ocarina of Time's footsteps, they damn well better deliver. Now, they could have just attempted to make a better version of Ocarina of Time, but that wouldn't have been enough, and conceding to the idea that they couldn't beat their previous work might have come off as a sign of weakness. And in times of weakness, it's human nature to crave power. Ocarina of Time holds a lot of power in the medium of video games, and simply trying to replicate it over and over again would render their work on the Zelda series hollow. That's why I'm glad they didn't let that power go to their heads. After all, a sword wields no strength unless the hand that holds it has courage, and the people behind Zelda have proven time and time again that they are more than worthy of wielding the proverbial blade. With that said, the consensus on Twilight Princess has been anything but consistent over the past 15 years. I've heard several positive and negative viewpoints on the game, with even a close friend of mine feeling as though this game crumbled under the pressure of trying to live up to Ocarina of Time. Only recently have I seen people organize their thoughts in defense of the game, a telltale sign that it had received a substantial amount of criticism for one reason or another. I've been following Zelda for about as long as I can remember. When this game came out, I thought it was awesome, and that sentiment stayed with me across my subsequent playthroughs. Was I missing something? In order to come to my own conclusion, I wanted to figure out where this game's identity truly lies. 
Zelda has a particularly malleable formula. The basic conventions established in Link to the Past afforded the team great freedom to experiment, and I don't think the series can move forward without that experimentation. Majora's Mask and Wind Waker were two incredibly fruitful experiments, at least to me. Majora's Mask used its central 3-day cycle mechanic to encourage people to seek out side quests and get stronger. Wind Waker used the Great Sea to encourage exploration and powering up at your own pace, with the game being about the journey rather than the destination. Both games offered a similar degree of freedom in very different contexts. Twilight Princess is also focused on the journey, but from the opposite perspective. It's linear, and it wants you to experience things in a very specific way. As such, I've seen plenty of complaints over the years directed at the game's pacing, lack of freedom, and its adherence to the elements that made Ocarina of Time special, not allowing it to have a voice of its own, among other things. But I believe the team is, and always has been, responsible. And as a result, I also believe the game is the way it is by choice, for better or worse. In many ways, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess is a game about responsibility. Taking responsibility with power, for your friends, your family, your world, and your own mistakes. They incorporated these philosophies into both game design and narrative, and created something that survives as a powerful and memorable standalone Zelda game. In this video, I'll be going over how I believe this game establishes its identity, how the developers handled the game responsibly, and how the game conveys its message about responsibility through its characters and its world. My goal is to inspire some newfound appreciation for this game if possible. Not because I think the game is perfect, but because I think it's important. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is a video about The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Originally, I was going to begin this video with a glowing analysis of Ordon Village, and how it foreshadows the themes that the game would go on to address. I'd bridge into the mystery of Hyrule Castle, the happenings in Faron Woods, etc. An all-encompassing breakdown of the importance of Twilight Princess's introduction. And then I scrapped it. Truth be told, it felt disingenuous to positively assess an introduction that I don't really like. I still have positive feelings toward the introduction, and we'll talk about those feelings in time. But it would be unfair to brush aside the issues that plague one of the most important aspects of a video game. The first impression. First impressions are incredibly important to me. If I can't get into a game after a certain period of time with it, it's unlikely that I'll feel inclined to continue. I think that's a fair stance to take. My time on this planet is limited, I cherish it. Very few games have pushed me beyond that barrier of entry, at the prospect of furthering my enjoyment. A previous Zelda game, Majora's Mask, was one of those games. Out of a desire to experience the emotional depth and utter genius it had to offer, I committed to a full playthrough in spite of how unwelcome its first moments are. Eventually, I discovered that the information seeking you need to do in order to restore your original form is applicable to everything you do in the game. Whether you're trying to solve the mystery of Snowhead or fill out your bomber's notebook by helping people with their problems, the more you put into Majora's Mask, the more you get out of it. Twilight Princess's introduction isn't confusing or abrasive or anything like that. It's just boring, and whether or not you come to enjoy the game is contingent on your willingness to slog through it and get to the good stuff. Therefore, in order to understand how I came to appreciate Twilight Princess, 
we must first look at how I came to value its terrible first act. It's no secret that the game begins... slowly. Actually, that might be an understatement. I've played through this game over half a dozen times. On my latest playthrough, it took me about three hours to finally set foot in Hyrule Field, and I have no doubt that it'll likely take even longer for first-time players. When you step back and examine what happens in this time frame, it might seem like a lot. Ordon Village, Hyrule Castle, Tears of Light, Forest Temple, these are all relatively beefy portions of the game from a broad glance, but they all take place in Faron Woods, with the obvious exception of Hyrule Castle. And with the exception of the Forest Temple, all of these sequences either focus on tutorials, or otherwise have you navigate through areas you've already visited. Ordon Village, for example, may be structured like the Kokiri Forest in Ocarina of Time, but the context for its events are much different, and the tasks you carry out are... dull, to put it lightly. Both have you collecting a certain amount of rupees before you proceed, which introduces ways to make money, and plants the first seeds of problem-solving in your mind. However, whereas Ocarina of Time had you fetch a sword and buy a shield so that you could enter the Deku Tree and prove your worth, Twilight Princess has you running errands for people around the village, with each task connecting to the next until you can finally purchase the slingshot. Stuff like fetching a cradle for Russell's pregnant wife, catching a fish for Sarah's cat so that you can get it to return home, and goat herding. A lot of goat herding. I think it works the first time as you can become acclimated with the way your horse controls, but they have you do it again before leaving the village, and once more on a time limit for a piece of heart. It's not exactly the most exciting task to repeat. The segment after Ordon Village is a little better. The game has you searching for Tallow after he runs off on his own into the woods. This portion is more representative of what the game eventually becomes, with linear progression through new areas and occasional exploration of suspicious areas with your currently equipped arsenal. Even this early on, your curiosity can lead you to a piece of heart. It's a pretty great tutorial because Twilight Princess rarely strays from this path in terms of pacing. It primarily focuses on linear progression from dungeon to dungeon, and rarely do side quests and additional content attempt to pull you away from that. Also, two heart pieces can be found in each dungeon, so it becomes evident early on what the designers want to do with this game. We'll talk more about that as it becomes relevant. As decent as this part is, the game is still taking a while to build its momentum properly. By this point in my playthrough of Ocarina of Time, I'd be well into Hyrule looking for Princess Zelda, and in Wind Waker there's a chance I'd be on my way to clearing the Forsaken Fortress. Twilight Princess, however, turns you into a wolf here, and has you escaping the dungeon of Hyrule Castle. This part is good for helping you become acclimated with Wolf Link's abilities, as this form offers an entirely new paradigm for exploring the world and solving puzzles. But the biggest problem is that the game has so much of its runtime thus far teaching the player about... stuff. Even after you return to Faron Woods, you'll need to fetch a sword and shield from the village and then run around areas you've already seen, collecting Tears of Light. When you finally fill the vessel and return to your usual self again, you'll still have to navigate the same areas one more time, with the deeper woods filled with a thick poisonous fog that you must slowly navigate in order to finally reach the Forest Temple. This process, from the moment I created a save file to the moment I entered the dungeon, took me about two hours, and I've played this game several times. If we were to compare the same two-hour time frame to, say, Ocarina of Time and Wind Waker, I'd already be entering the second dungeon of each game in that time. Wind Waker in particular has plenty of side content for you to familiarize yourself with in that time as well, thanks to Windfall Island, Pawprint Isle, and a couple of the accessible side quests on Dragon Roost Island. Even after you clear the Forest Temple, the elements that plague the game's first two hours still linger in the lead-up to the next two dungeons, primarily when you have to collect Tears of Light. Regardless of the impact it has on exploring those new areas, 
you're still performing the same task three times over. The repetition and slow pace of this game persists for quite a while, with the second dungeon, the Goron Mines, being a particularly egregious example. Magnetizing yourself to surfaces using the Iron Boots is a really cool new idea for an old Zelda item, but in practice this just results in very slow gameplay. You have to slowly navigate across these magnetic surfaces in order to reach new areas, and both heart pieces involve this in some way. The part where you're walking on the ceiling is cool to look at, but it is unbearably monotonous to navigate, especially if you take a detour for a heart piece. From my own experience, and from discussing this game with people that don't really like it, all of these things I've mentioned are the elements I commonly associate with eroding a player's interest in the game, and in retrospect, I'm astonished that the same didn't happen to me. Coming off of Wind Waker, a game that thrived on being an open-ended sandbox, I should have hated this game. And yet, I didn't. In fact, I embraced pretty much everything about this game, and had tons of fun with it when all was said and done. Like I said, I almost began this video with a glowing overview of this game's introduction in spite of everything it does wrong. And that is because I believe its first hours convey exactly what the game is going for. And it establishes a lot of what people love about this game, even when that may not seem like the case. That leaves us with the question of, what exactly is this game going for? Let's rewind back to Ordon Village, because one of the first clues as to what this game is trying to convey can be seen in our protagonist. This incarnation of Link is very special to me because I believe he is uniquely responsible. When previous incarnations of Link got their start, they were depicted as lazy and unwilling. However, something important to them takes them on a journey of epic proportions, and their worldview begins to evolve as they embark on adventures, grow up, and defeat Ganondorf. Their responsibilities are larger than life and gradually build as their adventure continues. On the other hand, the Link in this game already has plenty of responsibilities within his community, and he seems content with attending to them, no matter how menial the tasks may seem. When Tallow runs off into the woods and gets kidnapped, Link runs after him in spite of the danger of doing so. He cares a lot about the people in his life, so much so that he's willing to do anything for them, and he asks for nothing in return. Whether that means herding goats for them for the umpteenth time or saving them from monsters in the woods, he'll do it. He is selfless, brave, and responsible. Three qualities you're likely to find in a hero. And he hasn't saved the world or anything. He is simply taking care of his village. As such, the monotony of these tasks feel deliberate in making you value the simplicity of helping those around you. In contrast to the extravagant circumstances of previous Zelda games that defined our protagonists as heroes, running errands around the village is what made this Link a hero from the beginning. Throughout the game, a great chunk of his journey is spent reuniting the people of his village and inspiring those around him with the sense of responsibility and selflessness that has already been established. Saving the world is just a bonus, and that's why I value this Link. It's a boring intro to a boring life, and he likes it that way. It's not often that an adventure game like Zelda can depict something like this with such humanity, but Twilight Princess absolutely nails that feeling. Twilight Princess excels in two key areas, atmosphere and linearity. Both elements benefit from one another, and the game would not be what it is without them coexisting and balancing each other out. Precisely because you are experiencing things in a specific order, the game's story beats and memorable gameplay moments can be much stronger without anything else getting in the way. And in order to carry this structure, the game uses atmosphere to great effect. It takes you out of what you're doing and reminds you of why you're doing it, and how you feel about it. It doesn't always work, but when it does, Twilight Princess is at its best. In order to enhance your introduction to Wolf Link, exploring Hyrule Castle is made utterly creepy. 
Spirits of soldiers are trapped and paralyzed with fear, and there is an aura of mystery surrounding the whole thing. I couldn't help but want to see it through. And after reaching the rooftops, you'll finally get a glimpse into one of Twilight Princess's greatest accomplishments in overall atmosphere. Twilight. The discomfort that Twilight can evoke is what carries Twilight Princess's slower moments over the hill. It doesn't just exist in isolation from the rest of the game either. When you can see how it has affected the various regions of Hyrule, it becomes just as saddening as it is beautiful. First, let's elaborate on what makes the Twilight so impactful. One of the first things that is likely to catch your eye is the gold tinge that permeates every region it touches. This is first and especially apparent on the roof of Hyrule Castle, wherein the thick fog is illuminated by the twilight surrounding it. As you walk around, you'll see pieces of the twilight rise from the ground, which is reminiscent of the portals in which shadow beasts fall from. There's an odd elegance to them, which is emblematic of the kind of beauty that the twilight resonates with. It feels weird to say that, but that's genuinely how I feel. I'll give you an example. When twilight envelops a portion of the world, the monsters within each region are transformed into shadow beasts. The looks of these things are undeniably disturbing, but I find myself fascinated by them. My absolute favorite is the Shadow Kargorok. Their heads are completely hollowed out and they emit sounds that I can only liken to distorted trumpets. It's a gnarly idea, and one of my favorite enemy designs in a Zelda game. However, the element that ties it all together is unquestionably the music. This composition is one of those incredible works of art that feels as if it exists within the game world, rather than just serving as accompaniment. It is this disconcerting, atonal series of noises that make you feel isolated and often disgusted. There is nothing welcoming about the twilight as it surrounds Hyrule, and the music sure as hell captures that. It does a great job of making you feel unwelcome in your own world, and yet, that's what makes Twilight fascinating. For a further exploration of this, let's look at the other regions, and how they end up recovering. In addition to Faron Woods, Twilight has a chokehold on Death Mountain and Lake Hylia as well, and they've devastated once beautiful areas in often very depressing ways. On the outskirts of Death Mountain sits Kakariko Village, where the kids that were kidnapped from Ordon have taken refuge. This is the second area in which you have to retrieve Tears of Light and revive the Light Spirit, but what always strikes me about this incarnation of Kakariko is how shaken up it is even after you restore light to it. Kakariko Village is often depicted as a peaceful retreat from the rest of Hyrule. It's a humble village in which people are living out their lives to the best of their abilities. In Twilight Princess, however, Kakariko has been torn to shreds. A few survivors remain hidden in its buildings maintaining hope, despite how dire the circumstances are. In appearance and in mood, it actually closely mirrors Link to the Past Kakariko Village after it was devastated by evil. To solidify this connection, Twilight Princess's Kakariko includes a piece of the Dark World's theme from A Link to the Past. Specifically, the piece of that melody that represents that lingering feeling of hope. Next is Lake Hylia. While Twilight has a grip on it, most of the lake is completely drained due to a disrupted flow of water. The culprit being a frozen Zora's domain. So you climb up to the top and fight off some shadow beasts, at this point having mastered the flow of gameplay with Wolf Link. 
As soon as you use the sense ability here, this happens. Yeah. The first time I played this game, I had no idea if the Zoras were dead or alive, which made it all the more creepy to witness. After restoring Lake Hylia to its former glory, I felt it was one of the most gorgeous locations in the game, and you can actually play a minigame here for rupees, a heart piece, and a fantastic aerial view of the whole lake. It's super tranquil and well worth the effort in the end. Bringing peace to ravaged areas of Hyrule feels like enough of a reward in the grand scheme of things, which is a sentiment that I feel Twilight Princess always set out to evoke. Our protagonist's core ideals are built on selflessness after all. As long as I was able to bring light to a world cloaked in darkness, I was fine with whatever I had to do. And that's what this portion of the game did. Despite being linear experiences, they conveyed so much and immersed me in why I was on this journey. This continues further into the game with the Gerudo Desert, Snow Peak, and the Hidden Village among other areas that all benefit from being linear experiences. Gerudo Desert is completely devoid of friendly faces, being a barren wasteland with the exception of a few suspicious landforms, items, and an enemy outpost crowding your next dungeon. But I suppose loneliness is appropriate. In Ocarina of Time, you were the only dude in the entire valley, and the Gerudo weren't about to let you in. It was a different kind of loneliness. This desert has no civilization whatsoever, and the music is far more sinister. With that said, I always felt it perfectly accompanied the feeling of infiltrating that outpost. You take out all the snipers and stealthily kill all the remaining Baldwins without being noticed, until you beat the king and finally make your way inside the Arbiter's grounds. I'd always walk away with a feeling of immense satisfaction because they'd crafted an excellent little excursion leading up to the dungeon. You can even find a piece of heart in the outpost. Then there's the Hidden Village, which is this incredibly memorable sequence in which you walk into this deserted town Clint Eastwood style and take out all the Baldwins that have forced the only remaining villager inside. An awesome sequence in the same vein as the Gerudo Desert, but after you become intimately familiar with the area by killing all the monsters, you can come back as Wolf Link and play hide-and-seek with the village cats for a piece of heart. Both are very segmented areas meant for progression in the main game, but they have great reason to be designed the way they are. The same can also be said for Snow Peak, but I'll save it for later. Now, let's talk about the way Twilight Princess's structure complements the focus on linearity. Usually, when I want to break something like this down, I tend to cite a Zelda game's use of heart pieces and containers as a prime indicator of how they wanted players to experience things. For instance, Majora's Mask's dungeons were intentionally brutal so that they could encourage players to help people across Termina. Wind Waker scattered heart pieces and upgrades across the Great Sea as a means of encouraging people to eventually master the game world, take on the game's toughest challenges, collect the Triforce pieces, and track down that ghost ship. Since Twilight Princess doesn't want to distract from its linear focus, heart pieces are deliberately placed along your main path, as well as inside of dungeons. Due to how the game is structured, you'll be riding through each dungeon of Hyrule more than once, and the potential to find goodies is usually noticeable. A spot to use your claw shot as you cross a bridge, various statues that can be controlled with your dominion rod later on, tracks for your spinner to latch onto, a bombable wall or boulder, you get the idea. I'd even count the guy asking for donations at the entrance to Castletown because you always pass him if you enter from the warp point on your map, and he's wearing some pretty bright colors. So you will pass by almost every possible heart piece at least once, and the key to obtaining them comes from knowledge of your items or the world around you, which are both significantly fleshed out due to the way this game handles progression. 
Everything you come across in the main quest has an optional application, whether that means an item, a person, or something else. Remember showing off your items to Tallow? You can demonstrate your skills in archery to him for a piece of heart. Using the iron boots in Goron Mines? Moving blocks over ice in Snow Peak Ruins? Fetching items with your Gale Boomerang? Even obscure heart pieces like the ones hiding away in Henna's Fishing Hole or in a Shadow Kargarok minigame still count. The Fishing Hole is mentioned frequently and you'll no doubt pass it while collecting Tears of Light, and in traditional Zelda fashion, they wouldn't introduce a new game mechanic without following up on it, as is the case with that minigame, the snowboarding minigame, and the miscellaneous caves and spots around Hyrule that require utilization of concepts established in dungeons. Even goat herding makes a return for a piece of heart. That's another reason the Tears of Light quests actually matter. They are intimate introductions to three of the most frequently visited regions in Hyrule. The tiers are intentionally placed so that you can memorize the layout of these areas, and the Howling Stones that lead to new sword techniques give further purpose to memorization. I've heard this game be compared unfavorably to Ocarina of Time over the years, and it's not a far stretch of the imagination to see why, but I also believe it doesn't give this game's vision enough credit. Believe it or not, all of the stuff I've discussed about the overworld actually differentiates Twilight Princess from Ocarina of Time quite a bit. Ocarina of Time didn't have heart pieces in its dungeons, instead opting to place them in creative ways around the overworld. Some of them needed items from the main quest, yes, but most of them were placed in ways that required you to think far outside of the box. Jumping behind the only waterfall in Gerudo Valley and bashing open a box nearby, playing Saria's song for Skull Kid and reciting all of your songs for the river frogs in Lake Hylia, including the optional ones, throwing a bomb into the spinning urn in Goron City after lighting all the torches, and the various magic bean spots and obscure locations across Hyrule. Even when you have to use these items, they usually have unique applications that you wouldn't expect, like cheating a treasure chest minigame with the Lens of Truth, or sinking to the bottom of the Zora's Fountain with the Iron Boots. Not to mention, there's the heart piece you get for collecting 50 gold Skeltula tokens, and the Big Goron Sword. There's a lot of stuff in Ocarina of Time that makes it seem more imaginative and engaging than Twilight Princess, but remember, each Zelda game offers something completely different, and I love them all for very different reasons. It's not about which game is best, it's about what they offer. And I believe the layout of Hyrule this time around makes Twilight Princess one of the most accessible and streamlined Zelda games. Precisely because of the linear and easily noticeable placement of heart pieces and the decision to implement them in dungeons, new players will know where these things can be found and they can figure out what they need to do to acquire them without straying too far from the game's linear pacing. It is deliberate, and I believe it works in this game's favor. But where I think Twilight Princess thrives, no matter your stance on the overworld, is in its dungeon design. These dungeons are where they aim to foster the player's game sense the most, and they fit right in with the game's structure and linear progression of ideas. This is also due in part to the decision to implement two heart pieces per dungeon, which gives the designers more opportunities to flesh out an item's utility in creative ways. Take for example this heart piece in the Forest Temple. There's a suspicious chest sitting behind the stairs you need to use to grab a small key. This is where it becomes apparent that you can put out lanterns after they've been lit with the Gale Boomerang, a concept that seems simple in practice, but is effectively taught in this instance. You'll see some more examples of heart pieces and dungeons as we go along. Let's talk about the dungeons themselves. I've already discussed the Goron Mines, which is pretty much the only dungeon in this game that I don't like. Let's start with the Forest Temple. As far as first dungeons go, it's pretty good. You may get the impression that the dungeon is a little straightforward thanks to the monkeys guiding you at first, but after you acquire the Gale Boomerang, you'll need to use it in order to find the rest of the monkeys across the dungeon, nab the big key, and finally bring them all back to the final room to cross the pit. The Gale Boomerang is like the ordinary boomerang, but its strong gusts can carry items, put out flames, and even knock some enemies over. 
Seems simple, but the dungeon is full of fun ways to use it like creating bridges to adjacent areas. The Gale Boomerang goes on to be a popular choice when fetching heart pieces in the overworld, as does the Claw Shot, which appears in our next dungeon, the Lakebed Temple. This place is like the Water Temple if it didn't try to fry your short-term memory. It's still one of the most confusing dungeons in the game, but it is an incredible evolution on what the Water Temple aimed to achieve. The dungeon has six floors and two wings, with the third and fourth floors being symmetrical on each wing. At the top of both wings are levers that when pulled will cause a giant waterfall to cascade down and into the central hub that connects each room in the dungeon. By directing the flow of water to either wing, you can affect the rooms of the dungeon in various ways. There's a heart piece you can obtain with the claw shot by first having water fill the room so that a bridge can rise and you can walk over there. Then you stand on a switch and zip over to the chest. Now, that's a lot to consider, but the dungeon eases you into things linearly first. In order to obtain the claw shot, you have to turn the water on in the east wing. There's only one correct way to go, and as you follow the water, you'll get a sampling of how the water affects the dungeon's moving parts. So you hop across some moving gears, nab the claw shot, and head to the west wing after changing the direction of the stairs. The west wing is where they test you on the claw shot's utility and your own ability to navigate an underwater maze. Once you've mastered the west wing, you can grab the big key and redirect the flow of water back into the central pool where you can finally access the boss. Seems simple enough until you realize how difficult actually navigating this whole temple is with just the claw shot and your wits. Thanks to the relatively symmetrical layout of the dungeon and more digestible core concept, the dungeon doesn't have to be an exhaustive exercise in memorization. Problem solving can take center stage. On top of all of this, the dungeon is really creepy to walk around in. The music is chilling, to put it lightly. The Arbiter's Grounds has you collecting four Poe Souls so that you can nab the spinner, find the big key, and fight the boss. Alongside some layered puzzle solving that takes place across different floors and some freedom of choice in how you approach the dungeon at first, the spinner is awesome. Its utility is rather limited, but when the designers create challenges for it, it's always a good time. Take a look at this room. This room is heaven for the item in question. It's all contingent on timing and reflexes, and you can take a slight detour to a more challenging path with a piece of heart. And in order to realize the item's furthest potential, they have you Beyblade and dodge your way to victory. If that weren't enough, the atmosphere of this dungeon is immaculate. Once again, we get to listen to some rather unsettling musical accompaniment, which becomes even more disturbing as you fight wave after wave of the undead in each room. Considering the desert has no living Gerudo to its name, it's not a terribly far stretch of the imagination to say that these might be the remains of the Gerudo buried beneath the sand. We don't know what fate befell them, all we know is that they are unable to rest and they are out for blood. The Temple of Time is an example of a linear dungeon done right. It is a straight line to the Dominion Rod, with each room being a new challenge. Once you get there, you fight the Dark Nut and claim the item. The Dominion Rod lets you control this statue, and if you recall, it looks identical to the one at the dungeon's entrance. So, this means going back through the same dungeon with a new toy to play with. You have to accommodate for this thing as you solve the same puzzles in new ways, and you can use it to find heart pieces as well if you're paying attention. You want to see how linearity can benefit a Zelda game? The Temple of Time and Twilight Princess is a fantastic example. Also deliberately linear is the Palace of Twilight. 
You need to enter two corridors and come back out with a soul, a source of life and energy for the Twilight. On your first time through each corridor, the light you've brought with you into the Twilight Realm can power certain objects, but the dark fog will still turn you into a wolf. Once you have the soul, you can dissipate the fog, but a Wallmaster will be following you as you try to navigate back through the same corridor. Like the Temple of Time, you're solving the same puzzles with a new variable, and now there's a dramatic sense of urgency in trying to carry the soul back to the entrance. It's a really intense dungeon, especially if you're looking for the last two heart pieces while being hunted down. Once both souls have been delivered, your sword will be able to cut through the dark fog, and it's pretty much a straight line to the end from there through puzzles and enemies. So what we have here is a diverse set of dungeons with varied concepts, layouts, atmosphere, and pacing. And the heart pieces just make them even more fun to explore and solve. But there is a dungeon that I love more than any other in this game, and... You know what? It is a strong contender for my favorite dungeon in a Zelda game, period. The City in the Sky. This is a woodcut print by M.C. Escher called Another World, printed in 1947. Just from taking a glance at it, it's hard to tell which direction you're looking into this piece from, isn't it? The floor? A window? The ceiling? Who knows? The bird creatures that seemingly defy gravity appear well-adjusted to this place, as if to imply that if you were to step into this world, you'd fall forever into an unfamiliar sky. That's the central idea that the city in the sky revolves around. When solving puzzles with the double claw shots, the threat of falling into the sky doesn't just promise the loss of a heart. It also threatens to reset your progress in navigating an abstract and confusing layout of walls, fences, ceilings, and structures that you've never seen before. In layout, it's always perplexing and consistently varied. You're always trying to find the next piece of the dungeon to latch onto without falling down and having to start over. There's something at stake with every launch of your claw shot. This, combined with the astounding and often euphoric art and sound design of this dungeon, make it one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had with a Zelda game. The music elevates it to this mysterious yet enthralling level thanks to its synths and spiraling noises that I always felt symbolizes the Uka. Creatures that were also lifted from the Escher print. Who knew that something so ugly could belong to a place so beautiful? The City in the Sky setting was so good that it ended up directly inspiring the setting of the next 3D Zelda game in full. Because this game wants you to focus primarily on the main quest, the team had a great responsibility on their shoulders to make the dungeons excellent. So they did. They're challenging, they all have identity and design and appearance, and they're rich with atmosphere. I don't necessarily think you need to enjoy the rest of the game to appreciate these dungeons, and that's a hell of an achievement. But at the same time, they establish and apply item functionality so well that it becomes second nature when thinking about how to apply them in the overworld. And I think that's a great quality for a Zelda game to have. Thanks to the streamlined and linear nature of this game, with the main quest, overworld, and dungeons taking center stage and carrying the game's pacing and exploration through to the end, the side quests they've included don't interfere with the game's pace in the slightest, instead feeling like self-contained excursions that you can seek out if you so desire. Rupees are not usually required for the main quest unless you want to buy potions or ammo refills to prepare for the more difficult battles. Otherwise, you can use them to repair a bridge, escort a barrel of hot spring water to Gorlig's son in one of the hardest heart pieces to obtain in the game, and finally donate a few more rupees for Mallow to set up shop in Castletown wherein you can buy the magic armor. This is pretty much the only heart piece in the game that you need to go out of your way to find, and for that reason, it's also the most challenging in practice. All of this requires a considerable amount of planning, and if you do enough digging around Castletown, you can find a quest that allows you to expand your wallet by collecting bugs around Hyrule. The fishing hole, the star tent, 
even the Ordon Ranch. All of this side content I've mentioned feels quarantined from the rest of the game, and despite that, they put a great amount of effort into making these areas feel memorable and detailed. Agatha's creepy bug hotel complements her odd nature. The fishing hole is one of the most serene places to be in the game. And Malomart? Well, yeah. But then there's the Cave of Ordeals. Unlike Wind Waker, this massive enemy gauntlet isn't required in order to finish the game. If you manage to complete it, you'll get a bottle of the Great Fairy's Tears, which refills your health completely and doubles your strength. The catch is, you can also get this wonderful item by scouting for 20 of the 60 post souls across Twilight Princess, which can also be found in dungeons and along the main path. The lack of purpose for a gauntlet this tough, as well as the lack of importance in pursuing side content, should have driven me away from this game in a heartbeat, as an avid fan of Majora's Mask and Wind Waker. I ended up not caring at all. The Cave of Ordeals was fun, and that's what mattered to me. Let's talk about combat for a second. It should be noted that Twilight Princess de-emphasizes item-centric combat, instead opting for mastery of the sword. This is what the majority of combat in Twilight Princess focuses on, aside from the odd enemy that requires an item to kill. You can apply the techniques you've picked up from Howling Stones to outsmart your enemies and finish them off more efficiently. It's like an entirely separate kit to consider in combat alongside your items, and prioritizing your knowledge of the sword can be a difference maker in battles with enemies that lean heavily on defense and evasiveness. It still takes a lot of skill and thought to use these techniques wisely, and I'll give you a fun example. The Mortal Draw can instantly kill most enemies, but you have to time it just right. When you pull it off, it is emphatically satisfying. However, due to the sheer volume of enemies on each floor and the deliberately brutal combinations they appear in, the Cave of Ordeals was one of the few times where I had to tell myself that swordplay alone just wouldn't be enough. I got creative with my items, I put distance between me and my enemies with bombs, I swung the ball and chain around to defend myself in large groups, and I actually managed to find a use for the stupid magic rupee armor as I was about to die. There's no magic meter in this game, so it drains rupees instead, and it's really dumb, but it actually came in clutch here. This is a completely optional area that you don't have to touch at all, and yet it provided me with some of the most fun I've had with this game's combat, and thoroughly prepared me for the final dungeon. At this point, I had all 20 heart containers and it was my last stop. Once I had finished the Cave of Ordeals, I reflected on a few things as I had seen pretty much everything the game had to offer. Twilight Princess is essentially the antithesis to Wind Waker in every way. Instead of having an open-ended world driven by discovery, it features a linear sense of progression with secrets that you are meant to eventually find and solve. And if not, it's not a big deal, because there are two heart pieces in every dungeon. Instead of the game encouraging you to find creative uses for all of the items in your arsenal like freezing enemies with the ice arrows and then smashing them with a hammer, the game wants you to cut them all down with the sword alone. Instead of the side content being a valuable part of the experience, it is all relatively segmented and unimportant to progression, as are some of the areas you visit for the main quest. All of these things are not what I look for in Zelda. And yet, I had such a good time with Twilight Princess. I enjoyed the fact that its major upgrades like heart pieces and howling stones were so well conveyed along my main path. I enjoyed how its linearity accustomed me to the world. I enjoyed that the side content, despite being swept aside, is so memorable, as it feels like a reward for seeking it out in a decidedly linear game. In summary, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess is linear by choice, and it does a phenomenal job of taking you from point A to point B in the most exciting ways possible. Its atmosphere and gameplay both flourish as a result of this decision, and if this game were designed in any other way, it would not be the game that I have come to love.
I understand if you don't enjoy Twilight Princess, and if none of what I said in this video thus far resonated with you. It may not be what you look for in Zelda, but precisely what you may dislike about Twilight Princess is exactly what I, and many others, love about it. And that's okay. As I've said in a previous video, different isn't synonymous with worse. As one final example of everything I've talked about up to this point, I want to discuss a part of the game that conveys everything Twilight Princess stands for. Its atmosphere compels you to move forward. It features new gameplay mechanics that are fleshed out in unique and especially memorable contexts. Its dungeon is original, the setting is unforgettable, and most importantly, it tells a beautiful story. This is Snowpeak. When you first arrive, you'll need to follow the scent of a reek fish through a powerful blizzard. There's no telling what you might encounter out there, as your only lead is the fact that a beast stole a reek fish from Zora's domain. As I navigated my way through the blizzard and fought off some enemies, I eventually got to a point on the mountain in which I could see again. It is here where I realized just how lonely Snow Peak is. Something about the harsh winds and the somber take on Twilight Princess's lead melody, combined with the visuals of a desolate mountain, really clicked with me. Even lonelier, however, is the Yeti at the top of the mountain. His name is Yeto, and as you'll soon learn, he is no beast. He senses that we are looking for a mirror shard, and leads us down to his house via an awesome snowboarding sequence. While Yeto resides in a mansion, it is a very lonely mansion sitting on a platform on the other side of Snow Peak. But as you enter his mansion, you'll learn that he is not alone here. As it turns out, he went to find a reekfish for a soup he is making for his sick wife. His wife, Yeta, will attempt to direct you to where the bedroom key is so that you can take the mirror shard, but her memory is a bit hazy, and instead you collect various ingredients for Yeto's soup. The cool thing about these ingredients is that as Yeta keeps accidentally directing you to them throughout the dungeon, you can actually drink a sample of Yeto's soup as he is making it, with each new ingredient adding to the amount of hearts it restores. The mansion is about as linear as some of the other dungeons I've discussed in this video, but like the Tears of Light collecting, the first half of the Temple of Time, and your first runs throughout the corridors in the Palace of Twilight, your exploration of the dungeon's various rooms for the ingredients gives you time to familiarize yourself with the layout and take note of things that feel off. Linearity with purpose, and trust me, you're gonna need that experience. After you outsmart the Darkhammer mini-boss, you'll acquire the Ball and Chain. This is where the dungeon opens up to you, as Yetta marks the correct spot on your map, and all that's left to do is figure out how to get there. You're pretty much on your own figuring out the applications of this new item, but its raw strength should give you an idea of what it's capable of. The layout from here is relatively open-ended and puzzling. You'll need to transfer cannonballs from one room to another to take out obstacles, as well as use the Ball and Chain to create a path for yourself in more ways than one. What I love about this part of the dungeon is how well it demonstrates what the structure of Twilight Princess can do for the player's problem-solving skills. It takes the player in a set direction, and while the player is moving in that direction, it gradually introduces and builds on new concepts, all the while allowing them to memorize the place they're exploring. Once enough work has been done in teaching them about their surroundings, they just let the player go wild in solving the remaining problems when they are at their hardest. They know how to navigate around this place and all the tools are at their disposal, all that's left is to test them on the knowledge until they've mastered it. Once they've mastered it, they want more. So you test them one more time in the overworld with a cave that they now have a key for, and reward them with a piece of heart. It's a brilliant and subconscious development that happens while playing. You don't think about it, but you do feel it. And that's why I love Twilight Princess the way it is. 
After finally obtaining the bedroom key, Yetta escorts you to the mirror. She is utterly mesmerized by it, eventually turning into a monster to prevent you from taking it. The boss is great and all, but it's what happens after that always stuck with me. Yetto barges into the room to see if Yetta is okay. Yetta informs him of the mirror being taken by Link, to which Yetto replies, Forget mirror, Yetta. No. Look into eyes of Yetto. Look in reflection of Yetto's eyes. They're true beauty. These two are truly the greatest couple in Zelda. Second to Anju and Cafe. Afterwards, you can meet the two of them at the top of Snow Peak and race them down the hill for a piece of heart. It's just nice to see these two having fun together, and with that, Snow Peak feels a little less lonely. Snow Peak encompasses everything that Twilight Princess is to me. It thrives because it is linear in pretty much every way, but it also sheds light on something that I haven't really talked about yet. By far, the most important influence linearity has on Twilight Princess is in how it tells its story. Wind Waker conveyed a message about finding your courage by discovering the world for yourself, and it did so through the open waves of the Great Sea. Majora's Mask had you helping people so that you could prepare for the main quest, and helping people tied back to its thesis of being selfless before your time is up. Their gameplay mattered to the stories they were trying to tell, and this is true for Twilight Princess as well, with Snow Peak being concrete proof. But it goes beyond just a single area. Since Twilight Princess uses linearity with responsibility, it's fitting that it also aims to tell a story about the various facets of responsibility, and it does so to great effect. Like Wind Waker, Twilight Princess exists in the shadow of Ocarina of Time. Its influence can be felt throughout, despite the strides it makes in establishing an identity for itself. The irony is, Ocarina of Time never actually took place in this game's canon. After the Hero of Time is sent back to live the missing years of his childhood, he informs Zelda of what eventually happens after Ganondorf rises to power. It is implied from this cutscene that he prevents that from happening, and from there, the events of Majora's Mask pick up. The Hero of Time lived out the rest of his life without anyone really knowing who he was or what he had accomplished, as his accomplishments took place in a time period that he prevented from happening. Twilight Princess represents this in many ways. You've no doubt seen some of the areas that were meant to seem familiar to those who played Ocarina of Time, but because that game was nothing but a bad dream to the world of Twilight Princess, these areas seem very somber and lonely, as if they were destined to be forgotten by everyone except you. The forest temple of this game takes place inside of a tree, and due to the appearance of the doors and enemies, it is heavily implied to be the decomposed corpse of the Great Deku Tree. Then there's a saddening reference in the music that accompanies Hyrule Field at night, it's a relatively subdued track until, suddenly, you hear Malin singing. That voice is unmistakably hers, I don't think I could ever forget what she sounds like. There are many more references to Ocarina of Time throughout, like the Lakebed Temple resembling the Water Temple, but I want to focus on a specific example that serves a purpose in the message Twilight Princess is trying to convey. This is the Sacred Grove, where the Lost Woods reside. This is perhaps the most soothing rendition of the Lost Woods in a Zelda game, especially if you pair it with the ambience of the forest. This is appropriate, as the Lost Woods and the music that echoes throughout are treated as nostalgic and calming in Ocarina of Time. The past is being preserved here. A descendant of Skull Kid, or perhaps Skull Kid himself, will lead you by playing Saria's song on his horn, in the same manner as Saria herself. 
He'll play tricks on you and sometimes you'll need to fight off his puppets, but he just seems happy to be able to play with someone again. The implications of Link being able to make it through are intriguing. He shouldn't have any memory of this place, but we do. The memories that drive him aren't his and shouldn't exist in the first place, and yet, that's exactly why this place is so familiar. As it turns out, all of this was a test to see if you were truly the hero worthy of wielding the Blade of Evil's Bane. Whatever this place was, it only belonged to someone that carried the hero's blood. Later, you revisit the Sacred Grove to look for a mirror shard in the past version of the Temple of Time. Now, the Temple of Time as it stands in the present day is in ruins. As we've seen, the only walls that protect the Master Sword anymore are the walls of the forest, a la Link to the Past. However, as it turns out, the wielder of the Master Sword is the only person that can visit the Temple of Time in its original form, a deliberate decision that the Guardians of the Sacred Grove made in order to prevent anyone else from abusing its power. Now, I have no idea how Zant managed to place a mirror shard there in the first place, but I, I guess that's not really the point. The point is, although Link may just feel like he is doing what he feels is right, he is the only person responsible enough to wield such power, a trait that the Hero of Time notices from beyond the grave. Remember those howling stones that lead to new combat abilities? Well, the songs that you howl are from Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. I remember getting chills throughout my body when I heard the Song of Healing echo throughout Death Mountain. These are all songs that belong to the Hero of Time's journeys, and you are the only person that has the honor of facing him in battle. But the first time you meet him, he immediately knocks you down, only to say this. A sword wields no strength unless the hand that holds it has courage. This is a quote that the entire game revolves around. It has become a common theme throughout the countless battles of good versus evil in Zelda, but in this game, it's incredibly appropriate. As the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. Plenty of people wield power carelessly and selfishly, ignorant to their responsibilities and betraying the trust of those that depend on them. In a position of power, you need to have the courage to make difficult decisions for the good of those that need you. These qualities are conveyed through one of Zelda's greatest characters, Midna. At the 10th Annual Dice Awards, Twilight Princess received the award for Outstanding Achievement in Story and Character Development. Zelda games usually receive plenty of honors, but Twilight Princess's sole award amidst its many nominations felt deliberate, and I think I can solely attribute that win to Midna. Midna serves as this game's partner character, existing in the same vein as Navi or the King of Red Lions. While Navi stuck by the Hero of Time as he matured, she didn't exactly have much in the way of development or active involvement in the game's narrative. The King of Red Lions, however, gave us a glimpse into how players could become attached to their partner characters in Zelda. While he may not have demonstrated much personality throughout your adventure, his build-up and presence for the game's finale made the message of Wind Waker hit home. The next logical step would be to create a character that was inseparable from the game in question, and Midna's compelling redemption arc allows every thematic piece of Twilight Princess to fall into place. We are first introduced to Midna in the dungeon of Hyrule Castle, after the Ordonian kids are kidnapped and Link turns into a wolf beyond the barriers of Twilight. She frees Link from his shackles, but only agrees to help him if he does exactly what she says. Immediately, I began to appreciate the way the artist designed her and how she functions in-game. It's worth noting that Midna's look went through countless revisions before the team settled on her final design, with pretty much every single design looking different from the last. 
One of the first things that caught my attention is how Midna's hair is used in-game. She can latch onto things and attack enemies with it, with her hair often taking the form of a giant fist. It's a neat visual detail and can often give the player contextual clues as you explore the game. Speaking of looks, Midna is arguably the most expressive character in the game, which is especially important as her range of emotions throughout the story had to be conveyed with detail. The team no doubt took lessons from the work they did on Wind Waker with its expressive characters, and applied them to a more realistic-looking Zelda game in some pretty cool ways. Along with Midna, Wolf Link's expressions are phenomenal. You can see Link's human emotions bleed through his new form as he takes issue with Midna's dominance over his actions. Midna is someone that Link has to deal with for most of the game's first hours, which, if you recall, don't always hold Twilight Princess's most memorable moments. It would be easy to accidentally give players the wrong first impression of Midna due to the circumstances that plague this game's introduction, as you have to go with her and pursue her leads on the whereabouts of the Ordonian children in spite of who she is. She's selfish, abrasive, and deliberately annoying sometimes, at one point even flaunting the kidnapping of those closest to Link in his face. She is the opposite of who Link is. And yet? Yeah, you probably know what I'm gonna say by now. I didn't mind her in the slightest. For one, her attitude is immediately refreshing in comparison to previous Zelda partners. They had little personality throughout those adventures and just go along with whatever is destined to happen. Midna is nothing like those characters. She only really cares about recovering the Fuse Shadow and restoring her own world of Twilight, showing little regard for Hyrule at all. It isn't until we learn why that we begin to understand the way she acts. The other thing is, it's just really entertaining to see her complacency toward Hyrule shine through. During such a rough part of the game, it's only natural that if you don't enjoy hunting for Tears of Light, your resentment toward Hyrule would start to show too. Minda's attitude actually ends up complimenting that, which is something that I really appreciated. In spite of her demeanor, Midna's unwelcome attitude directly complements the atmosphere of the Twilight, and it eventually shifts as she witnesses the lengths you go to in order to save Hyrule and your friends. Shortly after trying to climb Death Mountain and learning how to sumo wrestle with Mayor Bo, you'll arrive back at Kakariko Village. Just before you arrive, however, something troubling happens. King Bulblin and his squad arrive to kidnap the Ordonians once more. In the past, Colin believed that Link would always come and save them, but this time, it would have been too late. Colin always had the most heart of the village kids, and despite doing the right thing in telling his father Russell about Tallow's kidnapping, Tallow and the others still resent him for it. His willingness to take responsibility and stand by his decision took a great deal of courage, no doubt inspired by Link's deeds. In this moment, Colin rises to the occasion and shoves Beth out of the way before being knocked out and held hostage. As Link? It is now your responsibility to save Colin from King Bulblin's grasp and return the favor, a task that Link passionately accepts. What follows is one of my favorite sequences in Twilight Princess, and it happens just before you enter the second dungeon, proving once again that the thematic merits of Twilight Princess often complement its deliberate linearity. It features horseback combat at its finest, a new and welcome addition to the game. Miyamoto previously wanted to implement it in Ocarina of Time, but couldn't for one reason or another. It is convenient for cutting down the Bulblins that insist on riding up close to you and impeding your exploration, but it works tremendously well in segmented sequences like this one. Against the backdrop of a Twilight Barrier, you ride. It is one of the most memorable combat sequences in Twilight Princess, and the area in which the fight takes place happens to be an area that I have an emotional attachment to. It's the region that Link rides through in the title screen, it's the region in which I heard Malin's voice for the first time, and it's the region in which the final battle takes place. But let's not jump too far ahead. 
The way the Twilight Barrier illuminates this place at night is mesmerizing, and it presents the kind of atmosphere that I remember Twilight Princess for. In spite of the darkness, I found light. Or I guess in this case, beauty. You wrap things up with a jousting match on the bridge, after which Link raises his sword in proclamation of victory. Colin confides in Link about his revelation about strength before passing out. I always love the way Tallow tries to return the favor by attempting to carry him to the house. This is but one of many ways Link takes responsibility for the people around him, and in turn inspires them. But Colin is my favorite example thanks to him finally following his heart and demonstrating his courage. But there's more. A little while later, the late Queen Rutella projects herself to you from the graveyard in Kakariko. She tells you about her son Prince Rallus, who has fallen ill after being attacked by the forces of the Twilight Realm. After he recovers and hears about his mother's passing, he loses confidence in his ability to rule the Zoras. Thanks to Link's endless displays of selfless responsibility and courage, he eventually makes peace with his mother's fate and steps up to the plate. There's also the resistance fighters that gather in Telma's bar, who take responsibility for the state of the world when hope has all but run out. One of the members of that team is Russell. Although his identity is meant to be somewhat of a mystery throughout most of the game, a member of the Resistance offhandedly mentions who he is under that helmet. If you recall, he was unable to come to Talos' aid in the beginning of the game, and he was also unable to find Colin after he and the rest of the kids were kidnapped, no doubt feeling embarrassed after failing those close to him, and inspired by Link's actions, he does what he can for the rest of the world. When you finally reunite with him in Faron Woods much later, the game doesn't treat it as this incredible reveal. It's just an ordinary heart-to-heart, -heart, much like the conversation he has with Link at the beginning of the game, and he repays him with a way into the Sacred Grove. As all of this is happening, Midna slowly but surely takes notice of who Link truly is, and his deeds begin to have an effect on her outlook. When she sees the Zoras frozen beneath the ice, she knows that the right thing to do would be to find a way to help them. It's rare for her to seem emotionally affected by things she has no reason to care about, which is why this moment always stuck out to me as a turning point in how she treats Hyrule. She even apologizes to Link for using him after the fuse shadow is completed. It isn't until after Link and Midna leave the Lakebed Temple that everything takes a turn for the worse. Zant curses Link to live as a wolf in the World of Light, with Midna being forced into it after Zant controls a light spirit like a puppet, leaving her on death's door as he spits the both of them back out into Hyrule. With nowhere to turn, and in spite of the control Midna exhibited over him for the longest time, Link decides to do what he does best. Help. This gorgeous yet crushingly dour take on the main theme is one of my favorite pieces in a Zelda game, accompanying a moment from Twilight Princess that has stuck with me since childhood. The only thing on my mind throughout this entire sequence was... Get to Zelda. Any reservations I had about Midna no longer mattered. I wasn't about to let her die. This sequence serves as one of the most poignant examples of Link's nature in the game, and it allows players to embody him and take on his responsibility as they carry Midna to the only person that can save her. Before we go any further, I want to rewind a little bit back to your first outing under Midna's command. Midna wants you to retrieve a sword and shield before continuing, so you have to make the difficult decision to break into the homes of those that trust you, scaring them in the process. This moment always stung, but it shed some light on something that comes with the territory of being responsible. 
making difficult decisions for the greater good. This is something that Princess Zelda had to do for the survival of her people. Faced with insurmountable evil and an ominous ultimatum, Zelda surrendered her kingdom to Zant. Despite Midna's comments on her upbringing and a life of luxury in a position of power, Zelda is willing to make those difficult decisions, which is something that Midna eventually learns to do. Upon arriving in Zelda's quarters, Link is told to head to the Sacred Grove to break the curse that binds him. Midna, conceding that she is at the end of her life, asks Zelda to tell Link where to find the Mirror of Twilight. All this time I figured I was carrying her to Zelda in order to save her life, but in truth, she just wanted to make sure I could still save the world. Something changed inside of her. Moved by Midna's selflessness in spite of her impending doom, Zelda sacrifices herself to save Midna. Midna becomes warmer and kinder towards Link, no doubt affected by the lengths both he and Zelda went to in order to protect the people they care about. This shift makes her the best partner character a Zelda game has ever had, with her brash nature making for fun commentary on the situations the both of you find yourself in for the rest of the game, rather than it being at your expense. I now had no qualms with calling her a friend. But who is Midna, truly, and where does her character development go from here? Well, she is actually the titular Twilight Princess. Her tenure as princess ended prematurely when Zant usurped the throne and turned her into an imp. For the longest time, her goal in order to beat Zant was to reclaim the Fused Shadow. Obviously, that plan fell through, and it's a good thing it did. Here's why. Just before entering the Lakebed Temple, the game treats us to a rather disturbing cutscene about the creation of the Sacred Realm, which eventually became the Twilight Realm due to the intervention by the Light Spirits. It demonstrates the dangerous effects that the quest for power can have on ordinary people, using Link and Elia as actors. The Fused Shadow is made up of the magic that once threw the Sacred Realm into chaos, and the Light Spirit leaves Link with these words. Those who do not know the danger of wielding power will, before long, be ruled by it. If Midna were to follow in Zant's footsteps and fight fire with fire, the influence of wielding such power could corrupt her intentions. Hell, it could corrupt anyone's intentions. And that is part of the message this game is trying to convey, and it's something that Midna learned with Zelda's sacrifice. Midna's people may have been banished to the Twilight Realm long ago, but she entirely drops her resentment for Zelda and Hyrule after realizing the true intentions behind Zelda's actions were pure. In a position of power, Zelda would do anything for her people, just as Link is willing to do the same for his village wielding the Triforce of Courage. After all, a sword wields no strength, unless the hand that holds it has courage. I believe this is the unspoken revelation that causes Midna to take responsibility for both Hyrule and the Twilight Realm, all based on material the game presents. I had a moment in this game where everything clicked. It was late in the game, as I was just riding to one of the owl statues in order to unlock the city in the sky. But at this point in the story, I had realized what it meant to wield power responsibly. As I witnessed the various selfless actions of this game's protagonists, as I saw the dangers of power firsthand, and as I realized how responsibility affected every minute detail of this game, the impact of Hyrule Field's music finally started to reach me. The main theme that is used throughout this piece can be heard in many different contexts. Chasing after King Bulblin, rushing a dying Midna to Princess Zelda, or feeling determination in Gerudo Desert as you hunt for the Mirror of Twilight. It's always there and it's always inspiring, in the same way Link inspires others to be better. But then came something that caught me completely off guard. During Colin's revelation, a piece of music play is simply called Courage. It's a simple flute piece that leads into the main theme of Twilight Princess, but 
It is a bit of a tearjerker during the cutscene. So imagine my surprise when I hear that same melody as I'm simply riding around Hyrule. To me, it is a reminder of why I continue to fight, the source of my power. As Twilight Princess teaches us, power is dangerous when wielded by those without pure intentions. But it can also corrupt anyone's intentions. Sometimes, it may be best that no one crosses paths with it. By the end of the game, this is Midna's philosophy. Let's find out how she came to that conclusion. In the lead up to the game's climax, Link and Midna travel to the Twilight Realm to defeat Xant. Throughout your exploration of the Palace of Twilight, Midna hides from the Wandering Twilight. This is because she is embarrassed to be seen in her impish form, as if this is the princess that is supposed to save them. This explains why she hides her appearance behind a piece of the fused shadow, and why she hides in Link's shadow throughout the game. Only by defeating Xant can she truly atone. Or so she thinks. We eventually learn that Xant is a mere slave to Ganondorf after being promised power in the form of divine intervention. Xant is drunk with power, literally being ruled by it. And I think the boss fight with him is a perfect demonstration of that. He never cared in the slightest for the people of his world, seeking nothing but vengeance on Hyrule for banishing the realm so long ago. In that sense, Xant is a reflection of who Midna could have become had she followed Path of Power and Revenge. But instead, Midna doesn't see the Twilight Realm as something to pity. She sees beauty in it despite its appearances, which is something that is conveyed through atmosphere and gameplay throughout the game. That and Link's actions spoke to her. Midna is confronted by the reality of her power when she manages to effortlessly pop Xant like a balloon. Right then and there, she realizes how dangerous her power is, and from there, her and Link set off for Hyrule Castle to kill Ganondorf and end this once and for all. The atmosphere in Hyrule Castle is, as you'd expect, breathtaking. In the courtyard, there is no music only the sounds of pouring rain. So you fight off bad guys until one stubborn King Bulblin shows up for another beating. This minion of Ganondorf has impeded your progress since the very beginning of the game, and you fight him four times over the course of your adventure. Once to save Colin, again while escorting Telma's carriage to Kakariko Village, again while exploring the outpost in Gerudo Desert, and once again here. He is the most persistent minion I have ever seen in a Zelda game, but I never really understood why. That is, until his inevitable defeat in the castle courtyard. He speaks. After several tests of your strength, King Bulblin finally decides to join forces with you after seeing not only how strong you truly were, but also where your strength comes from. In the most memorable encounters with King Bulblin, you're saving the people you care about. Ganondorf seems cowardly in comparison as he sits at the top of the castle, using Xant and Princess Zelda's body as mere puppets. There is honor in King Bulblin's decision, and I respected him greatly after this battle. As you climb to the top of Hyrule Castle, the music slowly evolves, 
It starts off silent and mysterious, gaining new instruments as you ascend further, but it eventually morphs into Ganondorf's theme, and I love the feeling it gives me. The further I climbed, the more I wanted to put Ganondorf in his place. This is fitting, as the castle gets harder and harder the further you climb, putting all of your skills to the ultimate test. Eventually you reach the top, and the fight with Ganondorf is familiar to those that know the story of the Hero of Time, complete with bottle tennis and a game of hide-and-seek with his own bestial form. But it's what happened after that truly shook me up. Zelda manages to come back to life, and with Midna realizing that she now has a chance to repay her, she opts to sacrifice herself using the Fuse Shadow. Finally, Midna can take responsibility for everything that's happened over the course of the game, and do some good with the power she possesses. Okay, Ganondorf is dead. It's hard to articulate how absolutely heartbroken I was when I first saw Midna's helmet crumple to the ground, but all I knew from that point forward was that I wanted to avenge her. But rather than letting Link run in without any concern for his own well-being, Zelda asks for the assistance of the Light Spirits, and what follows is one of my favorite final fights in a Zelda game. You ride around the same area from the title screen and beyond, assisting Zelda in shooting down Ganondorf. Eventually, it's just you and him in a sword duel to the death, and after that, Link finally finishes the job. This only occurred to me after the deed had been done, and I saw that Midna had survived the battle, but in that moment, I was blinded by revenge. I had to ask myself if I was any better than the people who wielded power mindlessly in the first place. My emotional reaction to that scene reaffirmed a point the game had made about ordinary people being corrupted by power. And thankfully, Midna knew what to do next in order to ensure something that devastating could never happen again. From here, Midna makes the most difficult decision she has ever had to make. She shatters the Mirror of Twilight, severing the only connection between the two worlds, making sure that no one could ever abuse their power again. Midna's final goodbye is symbolic of her growth as a character. After everything she went through, she was finally able to take responsibility and repay those that acted selflessly on her behalf. She was the only one that had the power to sever that connection, and she used that power in the best way imaginable. Midna's development is a prime showcase for this game's thesis, and she's one of the best characters a Zelda game has ever had. I was able to forgive her for her snobbish nature and selfish desires at the beginning of the game. The hardest decision to forgive her for was the one that made the most sense. Farewell, Midna. And thank you. The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess means a lot to me, and it certainly demonstrates the Zelda team's philosophy on moving the series forward. In a position of power and being pressured to deliver, they evolved the Zelda series in a responsible manner. Complementary to this, this game is also a cautionary tale about what power can do to an ordinary person. The imagery is often compelling, and the journey Midna experiences in order to become the selfless person she is in the end is a heartfelt and deeply satisfying depiction of how we can responsibly wield power. I've seen people that I once used to look up to and respect abuse their power, proving that it can happen to anyone in the pursuit of success. Honestly, with how I reacted to Midna's initial defeat, and with how emotional and reactionary I can be, I worry about the same thing happening to me. All I want to do is make people happy, but as I treat this whole YouTube thing more like a job, I often wonder how long that philosophy will hold up. However, just as Midna had Link by her side to show her the way, 
I have people around me that I can trust to ground me in the values that drove me to create stuff in the first place. Twilight Princess certainly isn't a perfect game, and I understand if this video has done nothing for you, but I want you to hear me out. If we are to take Midna and Zelda's philosophy on the Twilight Realm to heart, we should also believe in them when they say that light and shadow are two sides of the same coin. Hyrule and the Twilight Realm are not direct positive and negative reflections of one another. They complement each other. Critique of Twilight Princess does not have to be black and white. A boring tutorial to some could be a great reflection of a boring lifestyle that serves as a catalyst for adventure. Linearity could be detrimental to some people's enjoyment, while others could feel it serves a great purpose in creating atmosphere, telling a story, or creating a succinct gameplay experience. I do not believe Twilight Princess is a reflection of Ocarina of Time. It is proud to be something different, and that is why I believe it is a responsible Zelda game. I've been Liam Triforce. Thanks for watching.